You're listening to From the Desk of Alicia Kennedy, a food and culture podcast. I'm Alicia Kennedy, a food writer based in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Every week on Wednesdays, I'll be talking to different people in food and culture about their lives, careers, and how it all fits together and where food comes in. Today, I'm talking to Preeti Mistri, a chef, host of the podcast Loading Dock Talks, and an activist for equity and hospitality. We discussed how they ended up a chef and closing their really well-received Oakland restaurant, Juhu Beach Club, being on Top Chef, launching their podcast as an antidote to the whiteness of food media, and more. Hi, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Um, I think it's wild that this is the first time I'm interviewing you because I feel like we've been following each other on Twitter for a long time. I know. I was thinking that I was like, I don't think we've actually had a conversation that wasn't in 140 characters or DMs. Right. (laughs) Well, I'm excited to finally have that conversation. So can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Well, I was born in London and then we moved to the U.S. when I was five. I mean, I pretty much just ate Gujarati vegetarian food, traditional Gujarati vegetarian food, which is like dar bat rotli shak, which basically means dar is dal, mm-hmm. bat is rice, rotli is like whole wheat flatbread and shak is just whatever vegetables are in season or that my mom cooks in various different ways from things that are super saucy and spicy to things that are more like a dry stir fry. Could be okra and potatoes, which I was not a fan of as a kid. Mm-hmm. I like the potatoes, not the okra or spinach or eggplant or cauliflower, you name it. And then I really craved everything that wasn't that. (laughs) So I was super curious about what my family calls outside food Mm -hmm. and that I always wanted outside food. I was just curious. Like I just wanted to know like what other things, you know, you like watch TV and you're like, what is Ponderosa? Like what happens at a steakhouse? Like I need to know like red lobster, like these are things just, I mean, especially the meats and seafood and stuff that like, I, you know, I never experienced at home or at anybody else's home. And, you know, my parents were not about to take me there at least. I mean, you don't know, but my parents were not going to take me to those places. Um, they did take us to, I mean, mainly because we didn't have enough money to go to mm-hmm. like red lobster and my mom would just never even step foot inside. Um, she'd just freak out. She's a very staunch vegetarian. My dad eats chicken and lamb and some other random things. I got him, I, I had helped, helped him try a scallop once he was pretty excited about it. He enjoyed it. But yeah, I mean, so then it was like McDonald's, Taco Bell, like that kind of stuff when it wasn't like traditional Gujarati Indian food. And then we would go out to Indian restaurants, um, which was like the first time I tried like all these things that people think that somehow Indian people eat at home, like chicken tikka masala (laughs) and uh, like naan, like Newsflash, my mom doesn't have a tandoor. <laughs> and just like, yeah, Mexican, Italian. Like, I don't know mm-hmm. if you've heard that before, but generally speaking, most like Gujarati Indians that moved to the US, the two foods that they generally gravitate towards when not eating Indian food are Mexican and Italian, mainly because they can be made vegetarian relatively easy. And also because they tend to use, you know, spices, obviously Mexican more so with the heat. And then, mm-hmm. you know, my mom is just like, Make me a pasta, put vegetables in it, add chili flakes. I'm happy. (laughs) Uh, And then for us, it was like, oh, we could order like other stuff. So it was like, what's, I want to try the chicken fajitas or shrimp cocktail or, you know, just all kinds of things that we had never 
tried before. Right. So pretty like classic Midwestern fast food with a mix of like everything from scratch, Gujarati vegetarian in cuisine, like <laughs> most nights. Well, how did you go about getting the culinary education beyond the staples of what you grew up with? I didn't learn. I didn't really have an interest in cooking. Like I just saw it as like another chore Mm -hmm. and like women's work. And like, I didn't necessarily see myself like in my mother, like I didn't look at her and think like, I'm going to be like that one day. And so I wasn't really interested in cooking as much Mm -hmm. as like curious about food. So it wasn't until I left home and Anne and I, my wife, we moved to San Francisco and then I just started getting like really bored of outside food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and so I started cooking and that's like all, like how, how it all started. Like I just started cooking. I would go to the now famous buy right grocery store in the mission and like, look at what the vegetables were, like what was in season and they had really great fresh pasta. So I'd buy some of that and, you know, starting meat. Cause I was vegetarian for a period of time in my like teens and early twenties. Um, but it was always, so it was like the, the gateways, like it was like ahi tuna, um, salmon. Um, so I would get of things and experiment with cooking them. A lot of like William Sonoma, Deborah Madison, Molly Katzen kind of cookbooks. And all my friends were just like, holy shit, like you're good at this. <laughs> and it wasn't cool then, like in the late nineties, like 20 somethings were yeah. not like having dinner parties and cooking. Like this is not at all what people were doing. So we were kind of an anomaly that we would like have fancy dinner parties and tell people what wine to bring and that they needed to dress nice and like do the yeah. decor and everything. <laughs> and so, I mean, eventually it's like enough people were like, you should like pursue this. Like I wanted to be a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. That was my whole yeah. thing since I was a teenager. I wanted to make films and I was working in film, like at a film arts nonprofit. So I really was like, you know, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And then it just was like, okay, I'm going to try this. Like, I don't think I ever thought growing up that like cooking for a living was like a career that was like an option or something that people did at all. Like, again, it was the late nineties, like food network was just starting out. There wasn't the level of like celebrity chef culture that we have today. Mm -hmm. And so I just was kind of like, okay, well, I like this. It seems to come naturally to me. It makes people happy. I guess I'll give it a try. So then I went to, so it was just like coincided. I made a five minute film (laughs) Mm -hmm. and it was in (laughs) film festivals. And then my wife got this opportunity to work in London. And it was just like a perfect break for me to like try something new. And, you know, I talked to people at the British Film Institute and stuff like that. And they were like, we'll take you as an intern, but like, you're not going to get a job. Like I was still just like, you know, I'd graduated from college. Like I had a couple years of experience of working. Um, I was like an assistant. So it was just, yeah, it was the perfect moment to be like, okay, I'm going to do this different thing and see how that goes in London. And then, you know, whatever, I can always come back to working in film in San Francisco if I want. So yeah, I went to Cordon Bleu. It was weird. (laughs) It's like mostly... A lot of Americans and Japanese. I met the most wealthy people of my life. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was just like a total 180 from the world I'd been living in. Like I've been living in this like gay bubble of like college educated critique people and policy. Yeah. You know, people were into like activism <laughs> and queer politics. And all of a sudden I was like in the basement of a five-star hotel 
like peeling <laughs> like 10 cases of artichokes with these kids who are like five years younger than me, but have been cooking for four years. Right. Yeah. Change it all. And so for, from there, did you start, you started working in kitchens? Yeah. I worked in kitchens in London. It was really hard. I had a really hard time finding a place. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's really like not until the last four years, I feel like since me too, that I've actually connected with the fact that like some of the failures that I had weren't necessarily my fault. Right. But yeah, I had a tough time finding a place that I would fit in. Yeah. Yeah. Here's a funny story. I don't know <laughs> if I've ever shared this on a podcast. It'll be a Alicia Kennedy exclusive. <laughs> I really wanted to work at the River Cafe in London because mm-hmm. I thought of it as like the shape niece of London. And so I, as you do in the, this was like 2002, I think 2002 or three before the internet and things like poached, you take your cover letter and resume and you go to the restaurant between lunch and dinner service and you ask for the chef. And they come out if they want to and talk to you um, and they might put you to work like right away, et cetera. And so I went, I went and did that. And April Bloomfield was the sous chef at the time. And so April came out and talked to me and was rather impressed with my letter with all this flowery stuff about wild rosemary and Meyer lemons growing in California and how I was so excited about working mm-hmm. there and all this stuff. Um, and she was like, right on, like, cool. Like someone will call you in a couple of days. Nobody ever called me. <laughs> and I just think it was one of those things. Like I called whoever, like chef Ruth, like I called her assistant like once a week for like t- two months. And then I was like, this isn't happening. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then I'm not later, like they, they just don't hire anyone right out of culinary school. Like they only hire people who are like every single person station is somebody who's like has a level of experience and and ability um so you know for what it's worth they don't hire very unskilled labor which is what I was I was educated but unskilled (laughs) right yeah but eventually I found my place I found a place called the sugar club I was the only woman in the kitchen they called me hermana (laughs) and it was mostly I mean there were some there were like no British guys it was like kiwis Japanese, Venezuelan, and all the prep guys and dish porters were Ecuadorian. Hmm. And yeah, but the main sous chef was still my friend, Julio Flames. He lives in Spain. He's Venezuelan. And his buddy, I call him the fabulous Venezuelan twins, Raul, is still in (laughs) London. And he's actually like a famous like graffiti artist now. Oh, cool. We all did okay. (laughs) So that was three of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, how did you end up on Top Chef then in 2009. So we moved back to San Francisco in 2004. And I, again, struggled to find a place. My chef wrote me this glowing letter and was like, shoot for the top. And so I went to like all the fancy places. And again, that time it was like, I looked at Zagat and like, what were the top 10 restaurants? (laughs) And I ended up at aqua which was horrible it was just awful like there's just nothing like it was just like mean scary chefs screaming expletives at you 24 7 for absolutely no reason and so I was I couldn't deal I mean I just felt unsafe and I have the words to say that now I didn't have the words then I just (laughs) failed anyway I, I ended up at Bon Appetit management company which is a great company that does like food service for a lot of corporates but I was at the museum so I was the executive chef at the De Young Museum and the Legion of Honor which was super fun I loved it um again to 
prove the theory of like when you're fully seen and supported, you could actually do really well. Um, I did really well there. I was the catering chef within seven (laughs) months. I took over as the executive chef of the whole operation and quickly became the CEO's favorite. I catered a couple weddings for him. Then we lost the account because, and it had nothing to do with, it was all contractual stuff between the museum and Bon Appetit. And so, so they were like trying to find places for us to be. And they didn't have an executive chef job for me at the time. This is a very long way to tell you how I ended up on Top Chef, but I swear it's relevant. (laughs) I think it's great. It's relevant. (laughs) I mean, essentially I was super busy and I was running two museums and a catering business for two museums. I had no time at all. I never would have been able to leave. And so they put me as executive sous chef at the ballpark, the steakhouse at the ballpark, which was also under Bon Appetit management. The consulting chef who like, you know, she showed up for management meetings every couple of weeks was Tracy Desjardins. And then the executive chef was Tom Fox and he needed help. And like baseball season was starting. And so in the the words of the CEO, Fidel said, so I'm going to park you here (laughs) and then we'll see what we can do. And I was like, okay. Um, And they were amazing. I mean, it was great. And, And so basically it was like, I was the number two. And so there was a way for me to be able to like leave for five weeks and it not be like a huge hindrance to the business or just like an impossibility. Right. So I went and it was horrible. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, yeah. So how did that change? I mean, it seems like it was a a life-changing thing, but was it really? Because I mean, everyone knows how things look from the outside is never how they actually are. I mean, I think that the thing that was life-changing about it is that a lot of people all of a sudden knew who I was. And after I got through the like embarrassment and agony of doing really shitty and having a lot of media outlets say really shitty things about you when they don't even know you. um, Let's remember like Eater was super fucking snarky back then. They were not the lovable, amazing, like we get the industry (laughs) supportive people that they are right now. They were just mean. (laughs) They were super mean. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, once I got over all of that, I was just like, okay, well, the one thing I have is that everybody knows who I am. And so even though in my opinion, there's chefs around the city could cook around me, regular people don't know who the fuck they are. Like the industry does, but you know, the average American has no idea, but now they all know who I am. Yeah. And so I thought, okay, well, I'll just, and honestly, it was really hard to find a job. Like I left Google because I hated it and they were just making my Mm -hmm. life hell and they weren't supportive. They were just like embarrassed and like, oh, you made us look bad. So I was like, this sucks. Yeah, it was really hard. It was like, I was kind of blackballed for the first time. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) And that's when I started the pop-up in a liquor store, like across the street from my house. I was just like, fuck it. Like, I'm just gonna do something and hopefully people come and hopefully they like it and we'll see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when did you have the vision for what you wanted to do to express your own self as a chef? I think it was like, it started when I was still at Google. I mean, I always knew I wanted to cook Indian food eventually. Like I wanted to learn professionally how to cook and work in restaurants and all that stuff. And, you know, I mean, Bonapsi was great in terms of like the management side of P&Ls and all that. But I think at at that point when I was like, what am I going to do with my life? I think I kind of felt like I had cooked for enough people and other people's food that I was ready to start expressing my own point of view. 
Mm-hmm. And I think it was like a constant work in progress. Like I had no idea. Like it's weird yeah. how like I feel like chefs today, like that are so much younger than me, they sort of like come out of the gate and it's like they know exactly what they're doing. And it seems like they have this like exact vision of what their cuisine is going to be. And I just I opened a pop up in a liquor store with three sandwiches, samosas and a mango lassi. And I was like, let's see what happens. And then when there was some like leftover something, I was like, oh, let's turn it into this and just had the idea in the moment. And sometimes it became a flop and sometimes it became something that became like a signature dish that stayed with me for years. I don't know. Like, yeah, I just sort of, you know, but I did, I started getting the feedback from my friends outside of the industry that were like, you're cooking your food now. I can see it. Like I can see what you're doing and I can Mm -hmm. see that this is own authentic expression. Yeah. And fast forward a little, I would say the hardest part was probably 2014 because we opened the restaurant in 2013 and we went so we were open the whole year we opened it in March we, I wasn't ready to leave the restaurant to other people and so we closed it for two weeks and went to India and we basically my wife and I she's co-owner of restaurants I mean I think we both kind of agreed that what people really loved about the restaurant was not what I thought it was going to be at all like I thought the idea as I said, I started with sandwiches and a samosa and the whole thing was Indian street food. So in my head, I thought I'm going to just do this like kind of replicatable, fast, casual model of all these sliders and fries mm-hmm. and just this fun kind of Indian play on Indian street food. But what we found in the first nine months of running the restaurant is that the community that we were in in Oakland, they were really stoked that there was an Indian restaurant where there was actually a chef that they could talk to that was connected to the you know local seasonal ingredients that was inventing new things. And that was the thing that really struck people and our regulars. And so what became the pressure point for me was kind of like basically this moment of like, yeah, we have to like push this more. Like we have to, you know, for lack of a better word, continue elevating what we're doing. <laughs> you know, I don't love that word, but the concept right. to me is like, okay, we what what is there beyond sliders and masala fries? Right. And it was daunting because I hadn't really thought about it. And and then uh <laughs> we were in London on our way back from India. And I was like looking at the year-end stuff because it was like December, January. And like eater does that thing where they ask people like, Oh, you know, what are your sort of thoughts about next year and who's up and coming and what's hot and this and that. And Carrie diamond said something like, I'm really looking forward to seeing what chef birthday mystery does at Jew. And I was like, I was like simultaneously like super stoked and like terrified. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's like you put one foot in front of the other and you start seeing what happens. And then, you know, I think probably by the summer, I looked back in 2014 and was like, look at what we've created. <laughs> like This is really <laughs> something. And we did yeah. it. And then now we can keep doing it. And I think that there's yeah. a way in which once you get past that initial like, holy shit, like people are expecting so much more of me than I thought I was prepared to do. And once you break past that initial anxiety, it's really like, wait a minute, this is fun. Right. Like I get to kind of decide and do and everyone's following along and is like, okay, yes, we're with you. Go for it. So, you know, I mean, I think that eventually it worked out, but yeah, it was scary for a minute. (laughs) 
I think that that's so interesting and that that is always an in a compelling way for something to evolve is that kind of organic creativity, that spontaneous creativity. I think that that's always a lot more compelling and has a lot more longevity maybe than someone who does come out of the gate saying, I know exactly who I am and what I'm doing and exactly what I'm supposed to be. And I, I think that that, I think there's always a, a bit more excitement in the, in the spontaneous and organic way of going about creativity but that might be because I don't plan anything. So I have to see see virtue in it. I have to see virtue in it. I just think there's more, there's more like beauty in like parameters. Yeah. And confines. And, you know, I mean, if there's anything that we've learned over decades and decades of, it's like the best art comes out of some amount of struggle And Mm -hmm. to me, I feel like I do my best work when I'm being like chased by a thousand pound gorilla, like all of a sudden inspiration (laughs) strikes. Yeah. No, my book has only come together in like the last couple of weeks, I think. And it's due next month. So exactly. Yeah. There you go. (laughs) Well, I know you closed the restaurant in 2017 and you've been interning at a farm. You've launched a podcast, Loading Doc Talks. You know, I wanted to ask if you think that there is maybe more potential for you now to change the way that this industry works and how accepting it is of of people who have historically been marginalized in the industry. Is your role as a facilitator and more and a more of a cultural figure than restaurant chef? Is that your future? And and where why have you do you think you've kind of taken those roles on? I mean, a lot of it has just been really like happenstance, you know? Yeah. I mean, we closed Juhu. It was actually 2018, the very beginning of 2018. Okay. So um, we rounded the year and closed it in (laughs) January. You know, part of that was like, we were were like, yeah, we're going to open another one. We're just going to open a bigger, snazzier one. And then, you know, pandemic. But I think that for me, the biggest thing that's changed is between those two things. So the beginning of 2018 and beginning of 2020, I would say the biggest thing that changed for me is like, I really was on this like mental thing of like, I need one more run, but like, I want to have one more like restaurant or concept or something that I put out into the world where I feel like I can really like, I don't know, like I felt like I still needed to prove myself or something. And like through the pandemic, I just feel like I reached this point where I'm like, I don't fucking have to prove anything. <laughs> like, like, I don't care. And then I think from there, it starts to open up your brain in this way where it's like, well, what is the point? Like, you can't make money mm-hmm. at running restaurants. You run yourself ragged. You know, I mean, we were trying to finish the deal to sell the place remember my wife saying this to the broker, like, this is a life or death situation. And the broker kind of laughing. And my wife was just like, she doesn't fucking get it. Does she like, I'm worried you're going to end up in the emergency room. And I was just like, yeah, I mean, it was rough. It was just like, I was working like nonstop. Mm -hmm. And you know, that thing that happened where you're like really transparent and you're like, Hey, everybody, we're going to sell the restaurant, but like, not right now, but please stay with us. (laughs) Don't leave. (laughs) You know, it's, it's, it's a tough, tight rope there where, you know, it's sort of like, what are you going to do? Fire me. Right. So yeah, I was working more and more and more. 
Um, but now I just look back and I'm like, I don't, so like, you don't make any money. You work your ass off. Why? Like, yeah, I don't need to make food solely for being like, Hey, look at me, look at what I can do. And having people be like, Oh, wow. Ooh, ah, I need it. Whatever I do to have more meaning than that. Yeah. Yeah. Whether that's like the creative meaning which I feel like also in that realm and, you know, we can talk a little bit about this more if you want. Um, but, you know, I'm sort of definitely departing in a lot of ways from what I, the food I've been cooking for the last like decade. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is just, again, like evolution. And I look back and I'm like, yeah, in 2011, when I started the pop-up, people were like, the fuck is this? <laughs> like, you know, it was just like, what? And when I opened the restaurant in 2013, I'd say myself and, you know, maybe Marijuan and um, at Chaipani, um, there were very few people that were doing anything different, like outside of mm-hmm. the, like, I would all, I just search the internet to like, see what other people are doing, not like out of a competitive way of just like, who else is doing something interesting? And it would be like, oh, you'd see some cool inventive thing. And then he'd be like, it's pretty much just chicken tikka masala and sag paneer. They just like <laughs> gave it some different bells and whistles. Like it's just still the same thing. Like they're not really doing something different. Mm-hmm. But now I feel like there's a lot of people all over the country and the world that sort of have a different understanding of what is possible with Indian food. And it can be in a lot of different lanes. And, you know, you can have a butter chicken calzone and like Indian you know, tomato usher on avocado toast or whatever. And like those kinds of things were just really bizarre a decade ago. Mm -hmm. And so now I also just feel like, well, why should I just keep making that same stuff? Like I'm ready to do something different. Yeah. So what are you ready to do? I'm kind of getting really into like just traditional Gujarati food. Like it's, it's coming from a few different places. Um, one is something I think you probably might remember. I've been very, and probably know, like I've been very critical as a view of Daniel Hum and 11 Madison Park and like what's going on with a lot of the fine dining and plant-based food. And, and Mm -hmm. I I said something on Twitter a while back where I was like 10 courses, Daniel Hum against my mom, she would destroy him. (laughs) And then I was like telling my wife later that night over happy hour. And then I was like, wait a minute, (laughs) I could do that. Yeah. And you know, I mean, it would. Everything is always, I mean, I'm not going to have some fancy restaurant in New York with a three-day <laughs> abused beat on the menu, <laughs> but, but those, I mean, that's one of the inspirations. Another one is like the farming and just getting, I mean, we're, I'm not uh, volunteering anymore at the farm, but I'm just gotten a lot more involved with farms in general because we've stayed here in Sonoma County. We're actually moving. We're moving in a week and a half because we're staying. So we're moving oh, cool. to a slightly, a bigger house and yard and also um, just a little more convenient because right now we're like in the woods. Um, So everything's like 30 minutes away. Um, So we're just moving a little bit closer to civilization, Um, but staying in Sonoma County in a very, it's like a country house. It's cute. Um, Mm -hmm. It's very exciting. I feel so grown up. (laughs) So yeah, I mean, I think that's part of it too. It's like seasonal Gujarati cuisine is something that again, which is something else I've been about for a while is sort of like people don't think about Indian food when they think farm to table. Mm -hmm. 
I remember having this experience with guests, like, you know, you know, Temescal, Oakland's like all these like cute, like hippies would come in and be all like these cute old white people. And they, you know, they loved everything we were doing and be like, oh, well, you don't do anything with rhubarb, do you? I mean, that's not really an Indian vegetable. And I'd be like, actually, I made a strawberry <laughs> rhubarb chutney. You want to try it? Um, because I like rhubarb and I live in California and it's what's at the farmer's market. So I think that for me, probably focusing more on slightly more serious Gujarati vegetarian food, maybe some meat, but I've done a lot of meat cooking with Indian cuisine. And I feel like, and then the last desire is really like getting to this point of realizing that like, without sounding too morbid, like at some point, the people who, you know, have the keys to the kingdom of all these recipes in my family won't be with us anymore. And like, who is going to make sure that we keep those recipes and I sort of, you know, look around at all my cousins and siblings and I'm like, I'm pretty sure it's me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm getting into, I've been working with a lot of wineries, um, doing wine pairing, but also really just focusing more on, I mean, one of the things that was like at Juhu at one point, I was like, you know, when I say getting a bigger, snazzier space, it's like, I wanted to do more. And we had so yeah. many limitations. Like we just had such a small space. The kitchen was tiny. We had no walk-in. It was all reach-ins. And we were doing like 120 covers a night. It, so it was really like crank it out. You know, it was like yeah. more Manchurian cauliflower, Manchurian cauliflower <laughs> for days. We can't make enough. We will sell out every night. But it was like crank it out. Yep, get that cauliflower in the deep fryer and toss it with the sweet and sour sauce. <laughs> and I mean, and all the food was delicious. But I just I long to have the opportunity to do things that take a little bit more time and care and nuance in their plating, in their like technique of how they're prepared, et cetera. And that was just not really possible with the type of staff that I had who were all like, aside from maybe one or two people, like pretty, you know, green, mm-hmm. the kitchen, et cetera, it was just not possible. And so yeah. I, I, I've been wanting to do something more focused and, you know, I'm not against fine dining as a whole concept. There's just so much bullshit I see yeah. and read and experience. So For me, it's like, I have, you know, ideas for dishes that are more complicated than deep fried cauliflower all the time. I just don't necessarily realize them in the current environment that I'm in. And so I think figuring out and finding, so there's one project I can't tell you who it's with, but (laughs) I am working with a rather large winery on a guest chef series that will be me and two other chefs and we're basically doing like a five course wine pairing menu. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's basically the, you know, everything that I've been talking about in terms of one people thinking of both wine pairing and farm to table as these super European things, like doing five courses that are all Indian or, you know, and then the other two chefs will also be from non-European cuisines Mm -hmm. and, and some different projects like that, where it's really just like getting to, I don't know, getting to like create something beautiful without breaking your back. I hate to say it. Like I was joking with a friend who's in fine dining the other day because I do have some friends in fine dining. Not everyone (laughs) in fine dining hates me. Um, (laughs) And I was like, I might do something that's a little more fine dining. And they were like, it's not that bad. And I was like, I just want to like get paid well and make nice things. 
And, you know, if (laughs) I can figure out how to keep that somewhat accessible so that it's not totally, you know, something that's only accessible to the 1%. And also like, again, just like the original passion motivation for me behind Juhu was there's all this food that people have no idea about. And they, all they know is not in curry. And that was like yeah. the whole thing was like wanting to bring different, cool, interesting, fun things to people. And I feel like this is the same thing. It's like, you know, I mean, my mother harassed the hell out of me last Thanksgiving, like 20 times with questions about a carrot ginger soup where I'm like, I don't understand this. Like you have like a cookbook's worth of recipes just like in your brain. Like you can Mm -hmm. literally make like seven to 10 different types of breads. And like, you can cook all these vegetables and make all these dolls and all these different snacks and steamed fermented cakes and fried stuff. But you're like confounded by this (laughs) because it's all just like in your brain. It's like, it's like second nature to her. Like she doesn't even, she doesn't have to think about it. And the moment she actually has to think about something because it's outside of her wheelhouse, it's like, oh, I don't know what to do. <laughs> but when I think about that wheelhouse, I'm just like, yeah, there it's just such a vast, you know, sort of chasm of knowledge. There's so much there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think if there's is there there's a way that, you know, of course, I mean, knowing me as my mother would say, you and your creative ideas, like, of course, <laughs> it probably will not be like exactly her food, but there's just so much more. Like, I think that a lot of folks like through I know some of the chefs on the East coast of New York and stuff have been really understanding Indian cuisine beyond tikka masala through, you know, like Dhammaka and Serbi just opened Tagmo. And um, those guys also opened a South Indian place, Mm -hmm. um, which looks amazing. And I feel like people are starting to understand different Indian cuisines. My theory always has been one of the reasons that Indian cuisine never gets the glow up is because hierarchically in terms of class the higher class you go or caste the more vegetarian people are Mm. and the west doesn't understand how to value food that's vegetarian yeah 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 (laughs) you know the the goat brains and stuff that are on some of those menus at Uda and those places like in India, that's considered some like low class, low caste like food. Mm-hmm. Like it's looked down upon. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of like a weird mindfuck of how people understand Indian cuisine. And 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 I don't really care. Like, I mean, I like goat yeah. greens and I like vegetarian food. Like I'll eat it all. So for <laughs> me, I'm just like, I want to see like the food of my culture specifically, which is very vegetarian almost vegan aside from yogurt and ghee yeah be appreciated and seen for what it is because it's beautiful it's delicious i mean there's so many chefs indian chefs i know from other parts of the country like like asha gomez like you know she's from kerala like she grew up eating beef and fish and all the seafood and and but she's like oh my god i love gujarati food it's so you know and i'm like yeah i know it's great you know i didn't (laughs) even realize when i was a kid (laughs) I was like, I hate this. And now I look back and I'm like, holy shit, there's so much, there's so much interesting, good stuff that people just don't like the Western world doesn't really totally connect with. Right. Right. No, it's interesting because I'm, 
looking so much at the way foods are assimilated and erased in quote unquote American cuisine and the ways in which things are valued if they are adapted into that kind of middle class white pantry. And that's the only way that they obtain value mm -hmm. in the United States in, in the cuisine. And, and so it's interesting to hear about, you know, the, the idea that Gujarati food can't be, it, you know, hasn't had its due because of the vegetarianness of it, because Americans basically, and most of the West can't absorb the significance of, of vegetables in right. a way. Yeah. Like, and so like, you know, if, if you make something that translates into the American palate, it has to be very, very specific, mm -hmm. but then that also, that, that, that becomes some sort of marker of its, of its worth and, and greatness is such a, is everything. I think a lot of people are working against at this point. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm working on it. I got some ideas. Yeah. <laughs> I'm excited about January because I'm also get through this move. I get a bigger kitchen. So oh, good. I'm excited to start playing around <laughs> with all the ideas that right now are just in an Excel spreadsheet. Right, right. Well, I wanted to ask too, because you talked to KQED out there in the Bay Area mm -hmm. about starting your sp podcast specifically to create space in the very white world of food podcasting. So, you know, there's also been all this conversation in the last year and a half, like, is food media becoming more inclusive? Is it not? And so, you know, in general, though, power and capital are still concentrated in the same hands. Mm -hmm. Gatekeepers are basically the same at the end of the day. You know, what would a more kind of inclusive food media look like to you? What would it, what would it be basically? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's hard. I think uh, one of the big things that I have experienced is just this like annoying, trendy popularity contest. And, right. you know, I've been on both sides and I think I'm somewhere in the middle. I don't know. I'd like to think that <laughs> maybe I've transcended <laughs> that <laughs> hot or not thing. Like, I, mean, I just I just like hover above it all. I mean, mainly because I'm just not going to like do anything just yeah. for the, you know, just for popularity or whatever. Yeah. I mean, when you have the same gatekeepers in place, I think what the problem is, is that this sort of like, oh, this person's the person now, this person's the person. And one of the things that I see, and, and this is not just true for food media. I think this is true for all media. And it's also true for just any type of business or organization that's trying, you know, trying to keep the same gatekeepers in place, but still trying to be more inclusive. And that is that they'll oftentimes pick the young, trendy, hippest, hottest person to put on a pedestal and give all of this power to when that person, first of all, just got here <laughs> Two has no historical context. And therefore it does a disservice to a lot of different things. Like first of all, the disservice it does to that person is it kind of sets them up to fail and it sets them mm -hmm. up as like a shooting star. That's going to burn out. Yeah. It also sets them up in a way where, because they don't have the larger, historical context of food media or whatever it is, they're apt to say yes to things and be manipulated in a way that somebody who has been doing this for a while that also would be of that identity wouldn't. Mm -hmm. And I feel like yeah. that part is intentional. 
Yeah. I think it's very intentional. I mean, this thing that, you know, has become a mantra of mine because it comes up so often of like difficult to work with means difficult to manipulate is -hmm. that it's really easy to take that 26 year old. That's like the hip cool thing. And they might be awesome people. Like they might be totally rad people who have great politics and are super talented, but they probably haven't had enough experience Mm -hmm. to, you know, make the right decisions all the time. Yeah. And so, you know, and when you're getting that type of attention and all of this sort of thrown at you, it's also really easy to, to say yes, because it's really hard Mm -hmm. to not accept when people are trying to give you opportunities or, you know, feature you or what have you. Um, and you might not realize that what you're doing is, is, uh, you know, not necessarily the right decision. Right. And then on the other hand, of course, there's the thing of like, yeah, you know, whether it's folks, you know, I'm just a bitter old person, uh, <laughs> folks like me and many of my colleagues who've been at it for a long time or who actually are like about it as opposed to, mm-hmm. you know, the big thing I think that's frustrating is also within food media is like, oh, we need to f- someone who fits this identity. So they'd find somebody who fits that identity who that's it. Like they're not about yeah. anything else. Like they just happen to be brown and queer, you know, and from some cool country that is trending. They might not actually have any real politics necessarily. Mm-hmm. And so giving them the mic gives you this really milk toast version that then just makes all of the gatekeepers pat themselves on the back and feel really great. And like, okay, check, we've done it. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like, I mean, first and foremost, I think what needs to change is there needs to be, there needs to be change in, in gatekeeping period. Yeah. You know, I mean, I just told you this opportunity that I have. And the first thing that I'm doing is like bringing on two more BIPOC women colleagues, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, that was the whole point of my podcast. Yeah. Let's, let's talk to a whole bunch of people that, you know, some people that I interviewed or people that, you know, millions of people know, like your Korean dad. And then there's mm-hmm. other people that, you know, not as many folks know, or they haven't had an opportunity to really share their story and their point of view. So for me, that's the first thing. And then secondly, I think it's really important that publications really look at like, who's been doing this for a long time? Who has a real point of view beyond just like, yep, I checked the boxes. Right. Because I think you're going to get a lot more out of whatever, you know, you do. Yeah. If you actually give people like the power, like I think about, you know, I mean, geez, uh, the two times I've been in really large national publications would be because Ava DuVernay really likes me. And, you know, we became friends both time magazine i got to write something and last year i was in harper's bazaar like it's because those magazines gave someone like her the gatekeeping yeah that a different group of people were allowed to be honored and featured and until we do that i mean that's really what it comes down to is like you have the the like white male gatekeepers and they're like okay maybe you guys shouldn't be picking the 10 people of color maybe hire somebody as that guest editor or you know if you're not ready to give up your job and let them do it full time like at least do a guest editor thing do an editor in residence 
and, and give them the opportunity. And then the other side of that is because I've been doing a lot of consulting up here and trying to help folks be more inclusive. And the other thing that you run into is the media needs to take a chance. Like they're so afraid of taking chances and going beyond the sort of prescribed lane that they're that they're given that, you know, one of the things I've run into is like, I've been recruiting chefs for some events up here and, you know, and then, you know, these people hire me, they're all like, yeah, we don't want it to be a bunch of old white guys. Like, we're so excited to have you on board. And I'm like, okay, here's this list. And then they're like, "Mm, that person's not really a big enough star. And I'm like, how are they ever going to be a big enough star? If you never give them the opportunity, like it's going to be the same. It's like, I find myself in this thing and I'm like, oh, all the people of color are men and all the women are white. Yeah. And that's safe. Yeah. You know, or those people have got the, you know, they got the broke through, you know, or they're like, you know, it's this mediagenic thing too, right? It's like, oh, that person's like model gorgeous. And like some of these people are my friends and I think that they're fantastic and I'm glad that they're getting all these opportunities. And I also can see why. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's really interesting to me because I've always wanted to be a writer and work in magazines. And then when I got to magazines, (laughs) I was like, oh, wait, we don't care about building up new people. We just care about giving attention to people who've already gotten attention. And like, if you're a new person who gets attention, it has to be fitting in a very specific box in order to get, you know, it it was always really shocking to me. Like when I would pitch stories about people who were, you know, not famous yet, and it would just be like, well, they're not famous. It's like, well, how you know, how do I get the opportunity to talk about their work then ever? Mm -hmm. Uh, And you have to just wait, you have to wait it out. And then they'll, you know, and then it's like, well, what, you know, what are we doing here Mm -hmm. all the time? And so it's, it is that it's like, there is so much, there are so many hurdles to get and in your, in front of anyone's face or get your food in anyone's mouth when, despite the, the constant chatter about like, oh, I want to know what the next big thing is. I want to know. And and it's like, no, you actually don't though, because you don't want to put in the work of challenging yourself in any sort of way. You don't want to put in the effort that's going to be needed to find the new people to mm-hmm. support them. To get, and so, and, and it's just, it's really maddening <laughs> that it, but it works. It's, it's in both places. It's in media. It's in the, it's in restaurants. It's everywhere. It mm-hmm. is. Um, yeah. It is a struggle. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was on a panel with Rima Seal recently and, and she was saying that, you know, the media attention also doesn't, translate necessarily to material change. Uh, and, and that's a real problem. And I think that that comes with a lack of self-interrogation in the industry too, of, of media, where it's like, we're not looking at what the effects of what we do are. We're just kind of doing it and checking boxes and mm-hmm. wherever the chips fall, that's where they fall. And it doesn't matter, you know, whether we really affect a restaurant space in a good way with our attention or a bad way. We never ask those questions mm-hmm. and it's a lot, but uh, I did want to ask you how you, what you're hoping for 2022. Mm-hmm. I think you kind of told us a little bit, but maybe there's more. I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful for, I mean, for myself personally, which has been challenging for the last couple of years because, you know, the pandemic really slowed it down, which is, I'm so tired. I mean, I'm, I mean, you know, I, I'm a person who talks a lot. I always have since I was 
a child. <laughs> but like I my mantra lately is like, I'm so fucking sick of talking about shit and I'm so ready to just be doing something. Mm-hmm. And I think that that part has been frustrating for me, which is, you know, just goes back to the whole thing of like having a business and access to capital and who gets those opportunities and, you know, who investors line up for, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So I think that first and foremost, I think, yeah, I'm looking forward to doing more cooking and I will be doing some more farming, both personally, because I now have a yard that's a little under an acre <laughs> um, with fruit trees. Amazing. And also professionally, like activating a lot of different spaces with different folks I'm working with to be growing stuff, to be creating new dishes, to be also adding to the conversation. I think that's the biggest thing. It's like, I, I, I want to be able to add to the conversation with a thing instead of just the constant criticism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause I'm, you know, I, I, I get frustrated where I'm like, do, do I seem like one of those people that just like talks a bunch of shit about other people, but never does a goddamn thing. <laughs> But that's not true. You know, I I, yeah. I did this podcast thing. I got some spices. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I'm looking forward to just like doing like I'm looking forward to cooking yeah. and 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 moving the conversation through action. Yeah. And not just words, which, you know, in addition to all the things I just talked about in terms of, you know, access and networks, it's also just the pandemic. Right. So we've just been yeah. in this place where it's like, OK, it hasn't necessarily been safe unless you're already in that space and how safe, you know, whatever, all of you, everybody's different in what feels safe for them. So, mm-hmm. you know, that part has been also challenging. It's just like feeling like, Oh, I just want to like do things. So I feel like definitely doing more collaborations. I see a lot of that sort of work mm-hmm. with other chefs, um, hopefully more events and dinners and things on farms. <laughs> I'm talking there's a, I mean, there's just like a lot of cool stuff happening up here in Sonoma County in terms of BIPOC folks starting to kind of take up a very small amount of space. So I'm and the only thing that's really fun about that is that when there's so few of us, we're all like, hey, 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 we need to do this together. Let's hang out. Uh, yeah, you're here. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's that kind of thing that's kind of interesting up here. I mean, I hope that people continue to have this vision that I feel like started last year that has continued of like a certain amount of folks have become disillusioned with the like Michelin star kind of BS attitude and just smoke and mirrors, pomp and circumstance BS. Mm So, you know, I hope that that continues. I hope that more people get leadership roles that actually know what they're doing but you know I'm not super hopeful honestly (laughs) I feel like if anything the doing is also like I just need to focus on doing my own thing and not even worry about the bigger picture because it's just like (laughs) probably gonna continue to suck Um, (laughs) but like so then it's like just carve out your world you know right whether that's physical or virtual carve out that piece of the world that works for you and that you can be creative and make some sort of positive impact. Like we can't all 
change the world, but we can do our little part and like just really put energy into that. I also want to do products. I'm like really into, um, it's one of my many, what's the word, sort of epiphanies or discoveries through the pandemic has been like, so working on the farm, I'm like, oh, growing like vegetables and trying to sell them makes less money than running a restaurant and it's even harder work. And so then I started thinking about like, well, who actually makes money at this? And, you know, obviously the most, the most obvious example would be wine, right? But a value add product, which is a term that I've learned in the last year and a half. And so like, that's kind of my big interest right now is really focusing on like, I don't need to grow my own kale and potatoes. Like we get a CSA box, the farm's great. I love them. All those kinds of staples. So when I think about growing stuff, whether it's professionally um, with some of the projects I'm working on or personally, um, which might turn into something professional. I really want to like grow things that are specific in order to create like a added product, whether that's a beverage or a preserve or a pickle or what have you, a spice, a sauce. Cause I feel like that's really the one area where one can be mildly successful and not kill themselves yeah. doing it. <laughs> if they do it right i did have a line of yeah. cor- curry we had a line of curry sauces in like 2005 and it was horrible um, my <laughs> wife is a business person she has an mba and she very i was like we just need to sell more and she was like we lose three cents a jar and i was like so we just need to sell more and she was like that means the more we sell the more we lose and lose, i was like yeah. oh <laughs> that's why you're the business person <laughs> Well, for you, is cooking a political act? Yes. It's, yeah, I've, I've said that. Cooking food of my personal cultural heritage is fucking political. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think that, you know, from the, you know, lunchbox stories to just the, our conversation earlier about um, vegetarian cuisine and how it's seen in the U S and thinking about my mother and all the stuff that she cooks. And yeah, it's a political act because it is in danger. Mm -hmm. It is like literally endangered. Yeah. You know, even like a lot of Gujaratis that I know that are my age, like, you know, and this isn't a diss, it's just like, everybody's different, but like their moms didn't cook everything from scratch the way my mom did. Like Mm -hmm. where I'm like, yeah, I made this. And they're like, my mom never made that. We always got it frozen. And I'm like, really? I've never seen it frozen. Like the only thing frozen in my mom's house is peas and blocks of tamarind. <laughs> like, why are there brown ice cubes? My mom's like, just leave it alone. It's not important. I mean, honestly, just fucking existing and opening my mouth, I feel like is a political act at this point in this world. Because we can like sit here and feel very like safe and a certain set of people and yet we know what's going on in our larger world. Yeah. So it's, it's totally political. Food is political. It's, it's whether it's about access or what, what and who is valued all of that, or who has access to food, um, mm-hmm. which is other stuff that I'm working on up here in terms of food and security. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you. Thanks so much to everyone for listening to this week's edition of From the Desk of Alicia Kennedy. Read more at aliciakennedy.news or follow me on Instagram, Alicia D. Kennedy, on Twitter at Alicia Kennedy. <laughs>